Welcome to Lakewood Sermon Podcast. We're glad you're here, and we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 online at lakewoodok.com live. Or we'd also love to see you in person at our campus in McAllister. You know, there's something that happens almost every Sunday to me. Uh, you know, it gets time for the, the song to finish, and we're praying. And I'm standing back there, and I know that it's about to go up to, uh, you know, kids' worship time, and uh, then the sermon bumper is going to play. And I have this moment of just that realization of, I really get to do what I'm about to do here. <laughs> I, I get to step out on that stage and start to share things uh, about the Bible with uh, my church family and with anybody who's going to watch later. And it's just, it's, it's a... It's a cool thing. Uh, but then there's that moment of, oh, man, I'm actually about to do what I'm about to do out here. <laughs> oh, man. But no, about, uh, let's see, six, seven years ago, it was when Eden was four, I know that. But about six or seven years ago, yeah, um, <laughs> I was driving Eden to preschool when we lived up in Kansas. And uh, she was just as cute as she could be in the back seat, singing her heart out. The song didn't make any sense. It wasn't anything uh, that you would, you would know or hear on the radio. She was just singing random things. And so we were at a stop sign. And I think that it's important for me to tell you this. We were at a stop sign. And I turned around and I told, was just going to turn around and just tell her, have one of those good dad moments, you know, where I just say, sweetie, I just love your voice so much. I just wanted to have one of those good moments with her. And so I turned around just to tell her how beautiful her voice was. And the second my face, my eyes met her, her eyes just got just big with fear. And she shouted, Daddy, you're driving. Keep your eyes on the road. I was at a stop sign. Let's be clear with that. But, but I said, okay, yeah, you're, you're right, Eden. I was just going to tell you how beautiful your voice was. And then I start driving. And then Eden says, well, when I have babies, I will watch the road and tell them how beautiful their voices are. <laughs> and I said, yeah, Eden, one day you will, you will grow up, you will get married, and you will have a family. And I, honestly, I'm looking forward to seeing you as a mom, because I'm sure you're going to be a great one. And uh, I thought, you know, all right, cute moment, accomplished father, you, you handled it well. And then my daughter's sweet little voice says, oh, no, daddy, you won't be there. And I said, why? And she said, well, you'll be dead by then. <laughs> and it was one of those where I, just, I keep driving, and I'm like, man, that's sad. And I just keep driving, and all of a sudden I hear her little voice in the back seat go, yes, yes, we'll miss you very much. <laughs> all that to say, this is the family I, I have. These, these are my kids. <laughs> so whenever my daughters get up towards marrying age, just understand if I'm looking over my shoulder a lot more, because I'm really hoping my daughter's not a prophet. <laughs> just that... But no, it's one of those things. Like, I love that I get to be a father. Um, and, you know, there's, there's so much joy and uh, frustration <laughs> and uh, growth that you get to experience as a parent. But one of my favorite things about being a dad is that it also brings you to a, a little bit of an understanding of how much your heavenly father actually loves you. Because uh, there's nothing my child could do. There's a lot they could do to break my heart. There's nothing they could do to affect my love. And it just brings that understanding of God's love into full, uh, to full understanding. Or maybe not full understanding, but just a little bit more of an understanding of how much he loves us. And today, really, what we're going to be talking about in service is this, how much God loves us. 
And so we're going to really unpack what it means to be loved by God, which is a huge, earth-shattering statement, but what it means to be loved by God. And we're going to do that by looking at the life of Paul. We're in our last week in our series on 2 Timothy, and I hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have. This, this has been an incredible series, uh, but one of my favorite things about this series is just seeing what Paul holds valuable as he approaches his death. This guy's in a prison cell. He is waiting for death, and in those last final moments, he writes a letter to Timothy, who he labels as his spiritual son, and he basically says this, I want to impart some wisdom on you as I pass the baton of ministry over to you. And so what we get to read in 2 Timothy are Paul's final words, not just to Timothy, but to the church, to us, to me, to you. And we talked about this, that it's, it's our responsibility with Scripture, that it brings this burden on us to hear the word of God and ask God, God, with how you've gifted me, with how you've called me, what would you have me do with this part of your word? What would you have me do with this? And so I invite you to step into that again today, to feel the burden of proclamation, to take what God has given us and to proclaim it to the world because we're all called to be proclaimers. And so let's, let's just, let's pray and then let's dive in. Jesus, we love you. God, I ask that you would speak, that we would hear you. Holy Spirit, please take over my vocal cords. Please be the one that communicates your message today and take all the glory. Father, we're, we're, we're your children. Thank you that we can say that and that it's true. Please speak. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Paul, we're going to pick up Paul uh, at his last little part in 2 Timothy. This is chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Paul says this. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Earth shattering. <laughs> well, Paul finishes 2 Timothy with almost like this, a little bit of like a honey-do list kind of thing, like, hey, could you do this, and uh, please come before winter, and you know, all these different things that he, he asked Timothy. It's kind of these, these personal instructions as he finishes out this letter, uh, but this is the thing that really grips me from this passage, and this is where we're going to dive in today. When you come, bring the cloak. Okay, so he wants his cloak, but then this. Also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, the parchments would have been uh, his copies of the scripture. And so what Paul is asking Timothy for is, at his dying breath, he's saying, hey, Timothy, when you come to me, I really, really want my copies of scripture. I really want to be able to dive in and get closer to God uh, because Paul is near the end of his life and he's longing for not, you know, hey, can you bring me some better food or can you bring me a really nice pillow? No, he doesn't do any of that. What he says instead is, hey, Timothy, can you please bring me the word of God because that is the biggest comfort that I need right now. He wanted to be close to the heart of God because through the study of scripture, we see the heart of God. And when the heart of God, we encounter that, it changes us. And so even as Paul is nearing his death, he still wants to be conformed to the heart of God. He wanted to study Scripture to the point of death. In fact, his death was actually coming as a result of his relationship with God. And so Paul believed that a relationship with God was more important than his comfort, that it was more important than his livelihood, that it was more important than his next breath. 
And not just for him, but Paul actually wanted everyone to experience that same joy of Christ. Which is funny because if I was standing there in that situation, like maybe I was the guy that knew that Paul was in prison, my honest thought would probably be, man, I'm going to pray for that guy, but I'm also very glad it's not me. Right? Just that thing of saying, you know, like, I, Lord bless him where he's at. Man, I, 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 I wish I could have his level of ferocity with Scripture, but I'm so glad that I'm not in a prison cell waiting for my head to be cut off. But Paul's sitting in the prison cell sending out postcards, wish you were here. Seriously. And that just shows the character of Paul because in this moment, he wasn't thinking of what he could have done to get out of this or what he could have done in his life so that he wouldn't have ended up in this position. But instead, we see what he's actually thinking in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. His mind was on finishing well, not avoiding anything. He never once in his letter says, hey, please pray that this won't lead to my death. He just says, guys, this is what's happening. This is coming. I'm passing on the mantle of leadership because I'm about to not be in this world anymore. And through all of this, he has kept the faith. And not only that, but he even longs for more of what got him into this position in the first place. And so my question as I read through this is why? What possessed Paul to deny himself to the point of death? Why is his faith so strong in the face of so much opposition. I mean, something we could just take for granted. Paul loved Jesus, and so therefore he did all these things and went through all these trials and then died for his faith. And we, we can say that, and that's just that's a thing. But really, let's talk about that. Because Paul didn't just die for his faith. He lived for his faith. And so what happened in his life that connected him so strongly with Jesus that he decided that he was going to put that in front of everything? And how can we get some of that? Because that's really what we're called to as the church. Because this guy gave everything. Here's just an example. In 2 Corinthians, not for his own boasting, and it happens later where he says, guys, I'm not boasting about myself. I'm boasting about my weakness. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives a list of every trial that he has gone through for the name of Jesus. It starts in chapter 11, uh, verse 24. It says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now that has a totally different meaning in Oklahoma now. Um, (laughs) But that's not what he's talking about. Understand this process, though, because to be stoned was this. The people would come around you, and the way that Paul was stoned, it kind of tells us that this is kind of how it happened, that the people would surround you, and they would pick up stones, not pebbles, stones. The size of tangerines is what the idea was. They actually had laws with how big the stone had to be. And they would begin to throw them at you until you were dead. And then eventually they'd take a big one, and that's the one that's meant for your head. He was stoned and then dragged out of the city and left for dead. People understood how to kill people with stones. That, that had been a practice. And so they killed Paul with stones, drug him outside the city, left him for dead. And you know what Paul did? 
His friend stood up and then he got up and went to the next town and kept preaching. This is the guy we're studying. Three times I was shipwrecked. That's just bad luck. (laughs) Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. We talked about it a little bit last week. I get that anxiety for the church part. But all the rest of this, I can't come close. And really, whenever I read through all of that, my meager offerings seem like an empty hand. This guy lived the existence of suffering. He still pushed forward. He still persevered. And so the question I have is, what could cause that level of of dedication? What could cause that level of devotion? And the answer that's told in Sunday schools across the United States, and the answer that we're going to arrive at today is this, Jesus. Um, I'm blessed. I've got an incredible family, uh, but one of my favorite, not favorite, I can't say it that way. Um, She'll probably watch this later. I I love you very much, Aunt Gina. Um, I have an Aunt Gina, and I hope, I hope that you have an Aunt Gina in your life, uh, because Aunt Gina is a spiritual giant in my life. Um, in fact, it was one of those things, before I got engaged to Mallory, we took a trip to her house in Texas, because I wanted her to meet uh, the girl that I was in love with, and I wanted, uh, I wanted us to just talk and join each other. And that became something that we started doing yearly, and then it turned into something that every time we can, we just get together, and it's one of those things that whenever we get together, we don't always know it, but somebody needs the conversation that we're having. And it's just this time of prayer. It's this time of speaking some hard truths to each other. And sometimes it's me speaking to Aunt Gina. Sometimes Aunt Gina speaking to me. Sometimes it's Mallory speaking to me. Mallory speaking, you know, it's just, it's a really cool thing. And not only that, she's a spiritual giant in my life, but she's one of those that if anybody that actually knows her were to hear me say these things today, they would be nodding their head like, yeah, no, that's true. But let me tell you her story just a little bit. I was young when most of this happened, uh, but I have a vague uh, memory of it. There was a time where we were celebrating because Aunt Gina was going to get married. And so we were, we were kind of excited about that, but after they were married, she found out that she had married an, a liar and an abuser, a man that brought her to the worst of who she was. And he left her as a fraction of the woman that she had been beforehand. And there came a night where Aunt Gina, struggling through this, struggling to find her identity again, fell on her knees before God, and her prayer was not, God, fix this. Her prayer was not, God, uh, tell me what to do. Her prayer was simply this, God, I, I need to know what you think of me. I need to know that whenever you look at me, what your thoughts are. And she was just, she was just straightforward with him. I don't know who I am in you. That's what I need more than anything in the entire world is to know what you think of me. And then she opened up her word to read it and she landed on this verse. 
In Luke 128, upon entering, Gabriel greeted her. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty. Beautiful inside and out. God be with you. And for my Aunt Gina, this was kind of a precipice moment where she was either going to fall away from God or fall into God. And in this moment, she experienced Jesus. And he began to speak to her. And what began on that moment was, her life was not instantly changed for the better, but what began was the journey. And it's a true statement to say that this moment started her on a path where she didn't walk alone, but she walked alongside God because she finally saw in his eyes, when he looked at her, the love of a father. And even after all this, she looks back on it. We, we talked on Wednesday night, no, Thursday night. And even after all of this, she looks back and she says that the blessing of the suffering through that period of her life was amazing. That it formed her into where she was today. And she told me, and I would do it all over again, which many of us would not be able to say that. And really, both my Aunt Gina and the Apostle Paul uh, went through this moment where they encountered Christ and they were left irrevocably different. Where the previous path was no longer good enough because they wanted to be where Jesus was and they wouldn't settle for anything less than that. Which brings us really to the first take-home point of the day. We're going we're to unpack this a little bit more, but it brings us to the first take-home point of the day, which is this, that a true encounter with the grace of Jesus begins the work of change in us. It's not the magic button it's not something that we flip a switch and all of a sudden everything works out and it's all easy because now we have the Holy Spirit. It begins in us the process of change where we begin to be what God has created us to be. It challenges our priorities. It changes our plans. And if you're struggling to relent to his purpose, if you're struggling to find in God's eyes his love for you, if you're tr struggling to understand what God is calling you to, let me ask you this. When was the last time that you stopped and tried to legitimately have an encounter with Christ? When was the last time you sought him out? When was the last time you let his love pierce your heart? And so today, I want to tell you the story. And I want you to hear from the creator of the heavens and the earth how much you were known how much you were saved and how much you were loved by God. But honestly, before we do that, if you, if you could, I, I've asked one of our elders to come up and just pray over us as we go through this today. Just to have a moment where he can specifically pray over all of us that we would hear what God wants to say to us today. Our Father, It's with open minds and open hearts that we come to you this morning for one purpose, and that is to listen and to learn what you have to say to us this morning. Yeah, we've heard that we're loved. There are songs about it. There are poems about it. But it's a genuine feeling that if you have never felt, it's very easy just accept Christ as your Savior, then you will learn what it is like to be loved.
to be saved. But Lord, as we this morning are here, whether we know that salvation or not, but we're listening. We're open to what you have to say to each of us. Our hearts are tender. Our minds are open. We're waiting. We know you're here. We covet your touch. We ask a blessing upon Paul as he speaks your words to us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Steve. So I took you through a little bit of what uh, my Aunt Gina's encounter with Jesus was, but now today I want to unpack Paul's encounter with Jesus. And so we're going to read it in its entirety right now because I really, it's, this is a cool piece of scripture. So here we go. It starts in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, if you don't know, Saul and Paul, same person. Um, Saul has his name changed to Paul after his salvation. Anyway, okay. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying And he has seen in a vision that a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But then Ananias answers, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And we already read in 2 Corinthians how much he did suffer. But do you get what we just went through? Here, we'll go through that. Hold on. Oh, sorry, I I thought I was done. So Ananias departed, though, and he entered the house. Laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Can you imagine, at three days before this, talking to Saul as he was leaving the chief priest? 
saying, hey, Saul, by the way, in three days, you're actually going to be baptized into the belief of the people you're persecuting. You think that what would Saul have done with that? Saul, three days, as ardent as you feel towards this cause, you'll feel the exact same towards the other one that you're currently against. And we ask ourselves, what happened? And what happened was, Jesus happened. On the road to Damascus, Jesus happened. So we're going to talk about what we just read because this is really interesting. So we go back to at the beginning of that. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, goes to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul's not only doing these things, but he wants to persecute even more. He wants to be more effective at quelling the belief of the Christians. He's not just a little into this. He's all in. And then on the road to Damascus, a bright light comes out and we see this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's reaction is to say, who are you, Lord? He understands that he's talking to God. And can you imagine the the guy that thought he was working for God, all of a sudden finding out from God that he's persecuting God? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And so Saul spends three days blind, not eating, not drinking, but praying. And honestly, if I found out that I was persecuting God, I would immediately want to spend some time praying over that. Paul spends three days not eating, not drinking, sitting there blind, praying to God. And then God goes to Ananias. And he says, go to Saul. And I like how it starts too, though. Because it starts with, Ananias. Ananias had to get a little excited there, right? Yes, Lord, I'm listening. I want you to go to Saul. Anything else but that. (laughs) Because his reaction to God is this. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has more authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And you want me to go see this man? You want me to go tell him about Jesus? In other words, God, are you a little crazy? If Saul was alive and doing things to Christians today like he did then, wouldn't we see him as the enemy? I don't think our prayers would be too kind. I think our prayers would be something along the lines of, God, please get rid of him. God, make this guy stop. This guy is an enemy of you. We'd even come to say, God, don't you you just hate this person and what they're doing? And we can look at our history as a country. We can look at our history as the world going back and back and back. And there are some truly evil people in the world that have lived. Can you imagine coming to the point of not, I mean, can you imagine going before God and saying, God, don't you just hate that person for what they're doing? what they're doing to your people, what they're doing to your children across the world. Don't you just hate that person? But this is what God says about Paul. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Don't understand. 
don't misunderstand. Saul, evil guy. A guy who was persecuting God, who was bringing Christians to the slaughter. But God saw in him his created purpose. And the thing that I ask myself when I read that is this, that if God can do that through someone as broken as Saul, then is there hope for me? Is there hope for you? Because God can do amazing things. But even more so than that, understand this, that when God looked at Saul, when God looks at you, when God looks at the most evil person of this age, he sees his children, and so often his heart is broken by the things that we choose to allow to define us. It's a parent that looks at one kid that's doing okay and one kid that's just going way off the tracks, and their love is for both of them. And when God looks at us, no matter what state of sin or struggle we are in, God sees us as his children. You are a child of God. And his call is for us all to no longer be defined by our past and by our mistakes, but to receive his redemption. And sometimes we get so caught up in our past that we are like Ananias. God tells him to go to Saul, and his first reaction is to judge Saul by his past, which is a completely understandable reaction. But we do that too, sometimes to ourselves. We disqualify ourselves because we listen to the deceiver who tells us that our past is greater than his purpose. That tells us that our struggle disqualifies us from his grace. Satan will point to your past and call you worthless. But the father points to his son and calls you precious. And where God changed Saul's name to Paul, he changes ours to redeemed, to sons, to daughters. God knows every part of your story. He knows your past, and he still calls you a child, his child. And that's very different. I didn't, I, I was in youth ministry for 13 years, and I loved it, but I always knew that I wasn't called to children's ministry. Um, it's just a very true thing. It's a very special calling, which is why I'm so thankful for my wife and Anne Marie. Yeah. But one of the things about that, though, is this, that there's a big difference, though, in me holding somebody else's child and me holding my child. I'm not going to drop your kid, don't get me wrong, but <laughs> we're not going there. Um, but when you hold your own kid, there, there's just something. It's, it, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just one of those things. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see this foreign baby uh, that he doesn't know. He sees his child. We are children of God, and we need to turn our eyes from our past to his purpose. Which brings us to the, the next point of the day, which is that God has redeemed, not out past, our past. That's my bad. Our past. God has redeemed our past. 
Now, this seems like a very simple statement that we just made, but allow that to pierce you for a second. God has redeemed your past. What you have done for evil, God can turn to good. God has redeemed your past. He's redeemed you from being identified by your past. Psalm 103, 12 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, which is interesting because you can only go so far north before you're heading south. But if you go east, you're going to be going east forever. They never touch. And Christ has removed your sin so thoroughly from you that it will never touch you again. As far as God is concerned, through Jesus, your past struggles and your failures are not a consideration when standing before God. But that's not all. It gets better. Or as grandmothers all around the world say, well, not around the world, but at least a part, this part of the country say this, that at the end of a good meal before the dessert comes, hold on to your fork, the good stuff's coming. Because God's not just the redeemer of our past, but of our present as well. Because, <clears throat> excuse me, I can come to God and I can say, God, I have let go of my past. I don't let myself be defined by that anymore. God, I believe that you've forgiven my past. But then I also come to God and say, but God, I just don't seem to do a very good job of choosing you in the present. In the way I value things, in the way I see things. I don't do a very good job of seeing myself as a kingdom or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven regularly. And I have such a desire to be what you've called me to be, but I don't feel like in my flesh I can carry it out. You're not alone. Because this guy, Paul, that we've been studying, this guy that went from persecuting God to being the, the standard bearer for, for Christian growth and discipleship in the world, that guy, he still had current or present struggles. In Romans 7, Paul talks about his own struggle, a struggle that he has after his encounter with Jesus, which tells us that it's not the magic button, that it's still, we still struggle. We still fight the battles between flesh and what God has called us to. We see that it's actually... What, we, what Paul experienced was the introduction to the hard path that leads us down treacherous ways and every step bringing us closer to God. It's a realization that a relationship with God is just that. It's a relationship. And every relationship has its good days, it has its bad days, it has times of struggle, and it has times of overwhelming joy. We are involved in a relationship with God. And Paul talks about that struggle in Romans chapter 7. He says, "'For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh.'" For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. There's times where we say, God, I know that you've redeemed me, but I just can't seem to follow you. What's wrong with me? And Paul echoes our heart in 724. When he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then we get something cool. Paul has said, I can't seem to do anything right. And then he says, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? And then in 725, we get this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So at the point of being overwhelmed by his own sinfulness and inability to follow Jesus, Paul then stops and reminds himself, he reminds his readers that it's through the, not through our actions that we're saved, but through the actions of Jesus Christ. 
that invites us into this relationship with the Father. I once had it told to me this way. It's the difference between saying, I messed up, my dad's going to kill me, and I messed up, I need to call my dad. We serve a God who is the latter for us. When we mess up, we fall into grace. When we mess up, we lean in to Jesus. Whenever we are struggling with sin, we go to Jesus like a person who's in the middle of the desert looks for an oasis of water. Because only there will our thirst be quenched. Only there will we find what we need most desperately, which is the forgiveness, grace, and purpose that God has given us. Romans 5, 8, or 5, 6 through 8 says it this way. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're still weak, while we're in the middle of our sin, Christ died for us. He doesn't just redeem our past. God is redeeming our present as well. He can do more with our right now than we can. And maybe one of the best things that we can do as Christians, even though it scares us to death, we wake up in the morning and we say, God, this terrifies me. God, this scares me to death, but today is yours. Whatever you want to do in me or through me today, I relent to you. The day belongs to you. Maybe if we started days like that, we would discover God's purpose and will throughout the way. And this attitude takes us to places we never thought we'd go, but that we were created to be. God redeems our past. And when we approach God releasing our past, offering up our present, our future becomes a path into the unknown where at any point he could tell us to pack up our families and move like he did with Abraham. Or maybe he would tell us to work and stay in our current situations like he did with Joseph and Daniel, which means that we have to approach God with the understanding that our plans will not look like his plans and we have to have a a willingness to relent to his purpose. One of my favorite stories when it talks about plans and purpose is the story of a guy named William Borden. It's this guy, uh, he was the heir to the Borden dairy fortune. They make a lot of money over there with them cows. But in 1904, he graduated from high school in Chicago, and his parents sent him on a world tour. This is a huge extravagance at this time. And they said, okay, just go tour the entire world, see everything the world has to offer. And so he goes on this world tour, and while he's out, he doesn't get caught up in the luxury of everything he sees. Instead, he gets caught up in the poverty of everything he sees. Not only poverty, but the spiritual depravity that he sees across the world. And so he decides on this trip that he is going to be a missionary. He says, I am going to be a missionary for God to the world because the world is in desperate need of Jesus. And so he goes home to his parents, or he writes home to his parents, and he says, guys, I'm going to be a missionary. And his parents say, you're going to college, (laughs) which is a very real thing for a parent to say. Now, William Borden honors his parents, but before he goes to college, he writes in the back of his Bible, he says this, that there will be no reservations And so he goes to college. Excuse me. He goes to Yale. And while he's at Yale, he starts a Bible study. 
Because he realized that there was a lot of secularism and a lot of people not knowing Jesus and that Jesus was needed at Yale too. And so he starts a Bible study and started out really small, just five guys just meeting to pray. But by the time that he graduated, that Bible study reached a thousand of Yale's 1,300 students. A thousand of the students were involved in the Bible studies that he had set up. But not only that, but he also created a mission in town for the homeless and for widows and orphans. He spent most of his nights walking the streets looking for people who needed Jesus and he would connect them to meals and health and he would talk to them about the grace of Jesus Christ. That is how he spent his time at Yale and he still graduated at the top of his class. Then he graduates and he gets offers, lucrative offers from so many different places and he turns every one of them down and in the back of his Bible he writes in there, no retreats. And so then he goes to Princeton, and uh, the Princeton uh, Seminary, and he goes through all that, but when he graduates from there, he packs up, and he decides while he's at Princeton that he is going specifically towards the Muslim population of China. That's who he's going to be, that's where he's going to be a missionary. And so he stops in Egypt on his way to China to learn Arabic. And so he starts studying Arabic, and then in his first year of study in Egypt, he he contracts spinal meningitis and dies. Yeah. The story was carried by every major American newspaper. And every one of them was exclaiming how good this person was, what all he had done at Yale, how many job offers he had. And they all ended with the same sentiment, which was, what a waste. What a waste of talent. What a waste of a good person that they just go and die. He could have stayed. He could have, been, uh, he could have amassed a fortune that was bigger than his parents' money. He could have done all of these things. He had every tool that he needed to be an overwhelming success. What a waste. But when his family finally got his personal effects back from, from Egypt, in the back of his Bible, they saw no reservations, no retreats. And then what he wrote right before he died, no regrets. And my hope is that maybe we too can follow God with a heart that says, God, I'm coming to you with absolutely no reservation. If you tell me to pack up and go, I will pack up and go. If you tell me to stay and work diligently, I will stay and work diligently because I want to do everything for your name. God, I'm not going to put up any walls in my heart that say that I, I won't let you take me there. I have no reservations when it comes to you. And not only that, but whenever God shows us our purpose and we see how daunting it is, maybe we can approach it with the heart that says, that I will leave no avenue for retreat. That I'm going to be all in with this. I'm not even going to think about retreating because this is the hill that I choose to die on. And then we can live a life to where at the end of it we can stand unashamed before the Lord, having no regrets because we know that as unstable as our ground is, we are standing on the firm foundation of the will of God who is holding us up with a strong right hand. Because the stories of the heroes of faith throughout Scripture and beyond are the ones that have one thing in common. Flawed people with an attitude where they have sometimes with great struggle relented to God's will over their own. And when we do that, amazing things 
happen. And we can say, like Paul, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When we let go of our past, when we give God our present, and when we surrender our future, God will redeem our future with the promise of the crown that is to come, with the understanding that no matter what suffering we go through in this world, we have the promise of his grace, of relationship, of heaven. Because really the entire letter to Timothy is about one thing. It's about the gospel. And when we finally encounter what God has done, how God has shown his love in specific and concrete ways, we are challenged because our greatest identity is found in what God thinks of us. So if you really want to know today, if you're sitting there thinking, I really want to know what God thinks of me, hear this. God knows you and loves you so much that he enacted a salvation that was so complete that it redeems your past, your present, and your future. And he did this, get this, he did this at the cost of his own life. Put another way, that God wanted to be with you so bad that he would rather die than spend eternity without you. That's what you mean to God. When he sees you, he doesn't see the screw-up. When he sees you, he doesn't see your failures. When he sees you, he doesn't see the one that just can't seem to get things right. When God looks at you, you know what he sees? His child. His child that he willingly gave up his life for. And he does not regret the cost of saving you. Because he's the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his flock. So if I can say anything today, it's this. Whether you know God or not, and if you're watching this later, or if you're watching it right now online, whether you know God or not, this is a father that's worth knowing. It's a father that's worth investigating because, man, that love is so intense and it's so readily available for you. This is a father worth knowing, and I would encourage you, find a friend in faith. Start conversations. Give us a call at the church. We would love to talk to you about your identity in Christ. But start the process of unpacking the truth of the gospel and what it means for your life and what God is actually trying to do through you because I promise you this, if you give your life completely to Jesus and you follow him, you may end up in a position where the world looks at your life and says, what a waste, but that will never be something that God says. Because you were loved, you were called, and you were known. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the day. Thank you that we get to call you our father. Thank you that we get to call you a friend and that we don't have to, we don't have to worry about what you think of us. Father, I ask that today you would overwhelm us, that you would continue to speak to us about these things. 
that you would challenge our thoughts, that you would help us to see what a life could look like. Give us visions of what a life could look like if we were to relent to you. But Father, I also ask that today that you would just embrace us and show us how much you love us. God, that we would be able to experience your love, that we would have an encounter with you that would leave us different. God, thank you for your overwhelming love. Please continue to preach this to us today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.